Hello and welcome everyone to today's monthly call with Citizens Climate Lobby. My name is Brett Cease. I have the wonderful privilege of serving as CCL Senior Director of Education and Engagement. And as both Madeline and Mark are busy at our annual board meeting today, I get to be your host. So I know that we've got groups calling in from throughout the United States and larger world and wherever you might be tuning in from today, we're so glad you're here with us and you're in for a real treat with our amazing speaker today, Marcelo Mena, CEO of Global Methane Hub. As we get started today, I'd love to invite all of our attendees that are here today to click on that link that you're seeing in the chat. That's CCL, actually rather, that's pollev.com forward slash CCL123. If you'd like to share where you're calling in from today on our interactive Poll Everywhere map, you can just click where you're at on that image and we'll display that in just a minute to highlight how far and wide all of our attendees are coming and calling in from today. And as you share your location, a special welcome to our new chapters in New Hampshire Seacoast and New York, New York University for joining us. If you are new to CCL and joining us for the first time today, each month, we as Citizens Climate Lobby supporters gather together for our monthly meetings where we do four things. We educate ourselves by listening to a guest speaker. We celebrate our success and growth. We take turns to practice and we act. And speaking of acting, we've also been mobilizing CCLers to write their house representatives, asking them to co-sponsor the RISE Act. And we are now extending that action to include senators as well. So we'll be sending out an email and text message with a link next week and encourage you all to take that action right now, even if you've written your representative before, We'll put that link in the chat right now so you can do that even right now or even during your meetings. All right, so as you are taking action, let's see where we are calling in from today. It's great to see the distribution here throughout the US. If we've got inter international attendees, feel free. I, I see a couple of links in Mexico and the ocean as well. Um, wherever you might be uh, calling in from, Keep on putting those links in the chat. We are so glad that you're joining us today. And it's wonderful just to see the distribution of states and locations where we are called into joining in action today. And what a month we've definitely had here in December already. I know that over 1,500 of us attended our December conference this past weekend. And we were blown away with the caliber and the depth of that lineup of speakers and topics obviously that were featured from climate champions like Senators Tina Smith, my own state um, of Minnesota Senator, Representative Paul Tonko, former Representative Carlos Cubello, to all of the amazing presenters we had come in from national organizations, from groups like the Niskanen Center, Rewiring America, American Forests, and the Bipartisan Policy Center. It was an inspirational and energizing event. And a highlight for me is always seeing the strength of our volunteer leaders, especially as they serve as mentors and play a member of Congress for our mock lobby meetings during the climate advocate training. But I also have to say how blown away I was by our incredible volunteer keynote speaker, Giovanna Gigi Santo in Florida. Her exposition on leadership was amazing. And at the end of the call, if you wanna stick around, we'll actually feature an excerpt from Gigi's reflections. We'll also just say this, if you missed any of those sessions or want to relive the magic with your group, know that all of the videos and slide decks are uploaded onto CCL community and YouTube for your enjoyment right now. So Todd's gonna to put that link in the chat so it's easy to remember. The link is simply cclusa.org forward slash presentations 
And we would love to have you be able to highlight that with your teams as well. Um, so with that though, what we'd also love to do today is transition obviously to our esteemed guest speaker. And let me introduce our guest of honor by way of an introduction because Marcelo's essential work is also personal for me. 16 years ago, in the fall of 2006, I had the chance to spend a half a year in the Southern Aizen region of Patagonia, Chile, backpacking, mountaineering, and sea kayaking through stunningly rugged and windswept terrain. From temperate rainforests to ocean fjords, the entire time we journeyed through this remote country, we were surrounded by beauty and it left an indelible mark on my soul. I, I still think about the conversations that we had out in the steps with the Poblodori ranchers sharing so earnestly how their lives and their livelihoods were threatened to be impacted by the expansion of impending huge energy projects, the damming of rivers, the construction of new large coal plants, all to send that energy far away to a capital city in Santiago that many of them had never even been to. It was devastating. And here's where the good news comes in. Rather than be resigned to that vision of the future, a bold alternative path was pursued in Chile in the following years that bet on the needed energy demands being met by more localized solar and wind projects. And as Minister of the Environment of Chile, Marcelo's team was instrumental in making that bold vision work. And in his role as the Minister of the Environment, he spearheaded multiple international environmental initiatives helping craft a landmark agreement to phase out coal power generation. And now with his extensive experience as a scientist, activist, former professor and policymaker, Marcelo works as the CEO of the Global Methane Hub, a philanthropic alliance to support a methane emission reduction effort around the world. As climate advocates, we know that reducing methane emissions will be one of the keys to staying within that 1.5 Celsius degree warming threshold. And on today's call, Marcelo is going to offer his perspective on what steps are being taken to lowering methane emissions, his reflections on his time as a public official and minister of the environment, as well as the recently convened COP27 climate conference. So with that, Marcelo, thank you so much for joining us today. The floor is yours. Yeah, thank you for the great uh, intro. And it was great that we got to talk about the, this common um, history that we had and, and com commitment to, to keeping the, the Patagonia pristine. And um, I'll tell you uh, both, both stories. First off, as, as you said, um, Chile was marred by uh, a lot of environmental conflicts. And I have to say, and that's why it's so important uh, that the citizens, uh, you know, what they could do is that it was because of many unreasonable people, I like to call, uh, is that we actually achieved what we are achieving today, in which the protests uh, actually were huge and, and the opposition to large hydro and large coal-fired power plants was uh, tremendous. And within 10 years, um, the citizen opposition pull, pulled the plug of, on at least 10 gigawatts of uh, dirty power and power that would have flooded the Patagonia and would have uh, hurt and impacted the biodiversity irreversibly. And we actually had something that many of the people were promoting, which was renewable energy at our reach. And we, we started uh, hearing, you know, the rising energy cost and that, you know, that lower uh, hydroelectricity would cause us to have increased energy costs. 
And people were just saying that, you know, without uh, flooding the Patagonia, uh, we would have to have a dirty power from coal. And, um, and, you know, we approved in 2012 huge power plants that were, that never saw the light because of the opposition from the, the people. And everybody was just saying, you know, it's either we do nuclear coal or natural gas, but the other options were just thrown off the table. And um, for the first time, then energy sector started becoming more dirty than the transportation sector overall in terms of emissions. And the, the, it was a very hard fight because there's a, a big commitment from the political uh, establishment to have these large hydro uh, power plants. But in 2014, there, were, uh, there was a shift. It was really important. The first thing that President Bachelet did was uh, to say, we're not going to do those big hydro projects, starting with Uraisen, and that we'll do something uh, different. We'll, we'll choose a, a different uh, pathway. There's a Minister pa uh, Maximo Pacheco and Minister Paulo Badenier. I was a, a, a vice minister then, enjoying myself way too much in comparison to, to the very solemn process that uh, it was actually pulling the plug on that project. But still, you know, people would say that energy price would, would, would continue to rise and uncertainty would be something that would uh, come if we didn't have this large hydro project. But we decided something else. Now, I have to say, most countries in the world have to choose two paths. And I'll tell you a little bit of what the, the information we know about the path that Chile should take uh, is about. First off, we, we see, for example, Swiss Re, the, the reinsurance uh, company, rating and looking at the Chile and many of the countries in the world will lose around 8 to 27% of their GDP by 2050 in different climate scenarios. But on the other hand, when I was at the World Bank, we commissioned a study that highlighted that if we had a net zero pathway, actually, we would actually grow more. It would actually spur more investment. And so therefore, the path to us is clear. It's politically a consensus. And it's something that we are building on government after another one. We started an energy revolution that started with putting a price on pollution. And so we were the first country in, in South America to put a carbon tax on emissions. But that carbon tax wasn't just a carbon tax by itself. It also included a pollution tax for local pollutants. And that really led to significant emission reductions. And the the, the first picture was a picture that I that I got from people saying, you know, that when I was a professor that uh, the power system would shut off its emission controls whenever there would be um, a lack of enforcement. We put uh, instruments in these smoke tax that, that actually see the compliance in real time of emission standards, but also there's a tax that they pay. So when I went to 2017, I actually saw the, the operator looking at two things, how much tax they're paying and they're trying to reduce it as much as they can and uh, in terms of the if they're meeting the standard. And that has led a significant reduction of local pollutants too. So that goes to show that we we we, we built on something on two things, an emission standard, a power plant, uh, a, a power plant emission standard, a, a, a carbon tax, a pollution tax, and that has contributed to the power sector become much cleaner. But also, this also brought increased capital costs for new power. The green tax increased the operational cost. We also added energy auction reforms, and therefore we all these things contributed in as a group to kill coal. Um, and the coal phase out was something we were able to uh, conclude and achieve and sign. 
since then, uh, we're talking about these decisions were around 2018 on the coal phase out and the power, gen power reform was 2014. Chile today, as it's been many years, it's the most attractive uh, market in the developing countries for uh, power, renewable power. But the most astonishing thing I got to say is that we went to virtually zero solar and wind to around 30% by the end, uh, by, by right now. And by the end of the year, we'll reach 35% of our power. So basically, a third of our energy is coming from solar and wind. And it was unsubsidized. It's actually helping us keep energy costs down. And it's something that will not be uh, reversible. So that led to us joining the Power Past Coal Alliance, and we agreed on phasing out the coal power generation. This has led many to believe that we could actually think about 100% renewable energy. And we recently published a study at, at my university in which we saw by, by, the, by the people from Chile Sustentable and um, CAS Engineering, and they said essentially that if we phase out also natural gas, it'll be cheaper uh, in, the, in the short term then maintaining our dependence on fossil fuels that will only uh, bring uncertainty in terms of the energy costs for the future. And even the establishment operators are thinking about 100% renewable energy future. So things have changed in the way that we see energy today. And the rhetoric today only should make us believe that is, it is this war, this, this Putin war, that's causing these energy prices to rise. And it's been renewable energies that have been leading us to have more economic stability. I'll give you the example of electromobility too. And another thing that we should also bear in mind is that we should also build energy, uh, so, sorry, um, air pollution uh, policy with climate policy. Santiago has had 30 years of pollution abatement We've reduced emissions around 70% to uh, uh, the concentrations of PM 2.5, and we have Euro 6 as a standard. And since we have Euro 6 as a standard, we are able to have actually electric buses. We have a five-year anniversary of our electric buses recently. It's still the largest fleet of electric buses outside of China. Each bus uh, operates at a 74% lower energy cost. These are a World Bank study that we commissioned also while I was at the World Bank. And it saves a system around $42,000 a year. And so actually it pays for itself in a three-year contract. But if you think about it now, the increased diesel costs have actually expanded that difference. And now every single bus is saving the system around $60,000 a year. So therefore the consensus is that we should aspire to 100% electric buses. Another reflection here is that open markets are important. And uh, protectionism only hinders the climate revolution. We need to have access to the cheapest technology wherever it's available. Super cheap electric buses from China uh, actually make competitiveness and make the rhetoric that we do not need to subsidize any of these technologies. We are doing this out of a for-profit model. Um, we, If we look at the uh, higher... Uh, carbon prices, we only have $5 per ton today and actually use a higher price. We will actually decrease our emissions even faster according to studies by the IMF. And if we have a, a carbon price like we should aspire to, we could really meet our net zero targets faster than we expected. So I just wanted to finalize my Chilean portion on energy to say that we uh, you know, our energy future is our choice, not our, not our fate. Amory Levin said that uh, a couple, about 10 days 
10 years ago. Uh, he delivered a, a nice um, talk in 2012 predicting what we had happened and ultimately happened as a country. Now, so today Chile has the third most ambitious climate policy according to German Watch. It's one of the four jurisdictions with acceptable net zero climate policies. But I have to just say one thing, there's no country that has a correct as doing enough. Uh, we must go into a mode in which we must do more than ever every year. And so we cannot really rely on thinking that we're, we're, we're done. I want to tell you a little bit about marine protection and the other, other, the other legacy that we work on in the government of President Bachelet. Uh, you know, today we protect 42% of our economic exclusive zone and that, that basically uh, growing the protection from four to 42% in very short time. I just wanted to tell you that um, today we have multiple marine protected areas that have helped address some of the overfishing that we had seen in multiple uh, species that you might be aware of. And we could see that there's a exponential growth of marine protection. And unfortunately this has only stopped and we need to continue to and, and expand our uh, marine protection today. One of the ones that we did, and the, the, I think the secret was to be able to work with all the NGOs and have them collaborate, not compete. And this is something that you know we needed to deal with. But for example, Wildlife Conservation Society did this beautiful uh, marine protected area in called Seno Almidantajo. They provided all the data uh, for us to have the evidence to do this. The, with um, with the Oceana, we did the Caleta Tortel, which is at the at the, at the, um, at the finalization of the River Baker. So therefore, we are protecting the River Baker in in its uh, in its estuaries towards the ocean. Uh, very beautiful um, um, marine protected area that will protect also from uh, salmon culture. Uh, we also have the Diego Ramirez Par uh, Marine Park, and I just wanted to tell you about that one we did with National Geographic. It, the intention of it is to protect the overfished Chilean sea bass, or scientifically known as the Patagonian toothfish, a sort of prehistoric fish that requires 75 years to reach reproductive age and had lost 95% of its population in very few years because it became uh, a, a species in style. And so therefore, um, this is a sanctuary in which we expect the recovery of the species. Uh, the Juan Fernandez Archipelago was a place in which we also used pr to protect from the orange roughy. And you could actually um, fish and get and buy Juan Fernandez uh, uh, lobster, uh, which has a premium and uh, in the price and it's fished in sustainable conditions. And therefore there's the denomination of origin in the region that uh, really exemplifies that you could have sustainable fisheries. We also work with the Rapa Nui uh, to have the biggest um, marine protected area in all the Southern, uh, Southern South America overall, even though it's more towards the Polynesia. Uh, we also uh, transferred the national park to the Rapa Nui population. Here's the president of the uh, Maukenua uh, movement, which means the uh, protectors of the earth. And they are now the park rangers for this Rapa Nui a national park. If you ever visit, that's who, that's who are going to be uh, administering and thus uh, national park. So it's a very massive uh, marine protected area complementing the Motu Motu de Hiva uh, marine park that had been established in 2013. Uh, when we were doing this, uh, we thought people probably are not going to ever visit a marine protected area or, or a national park. So what we did was uh, to uh, actually ban plastic bags and link it to 
the fact of ocean protection. And since then, we have also approved the uh, first uh, um, single-use plastic ban. Now, this story is not done until, um, you know, because basically there's a, a, there's a, a group, Tompkins Conservation, who had been wanting to protect the Baker River and all the Patagonia a long time. And once we pulled the plug on Idre Sin, we could also have a conversation with them to expand the Ornopiden National Park. We also had the very significant uh, Douglas Tompkins National Park in Pumalin, which is something that he had established with his wife, Christine, and for many years, and they donated this land around 1.2 million acres, which is the biggest uh, land donation from a private person to a government. Uh, Corcovado National Park was expanded. The Melimoyu National Park was expanded. We also have the monumental Parque Nacional Patagonia, which is uh, where Douglas Tompkins uh, rests today after his uh, very tragic death in 2015. Uh, Isla Magdalena National Park, Cerro Castillo National Park, Cahuesca National Park, which all together are 45,000 kilometers squared of M national parks. And it's one of the biggest uh, national park creations that we've had this century. So I'm very proud of having been able to participate in this because I had also uh, visited the Patagonia, the Baker River. I had tattooed uh, in, my, in my forearm that, uh, you know, uh, a, a symbol from the Lorax, just to remind myself that I couldn't let myself be part of the destruction of the Patagonia. And therefore, I'm very proud to have been able to fulfill the dream of Douglas Tompkins and my president, President Bachelet. This also had um, a lot of tension, of course. And uh, there's the, you know, in the end, another, another mine that wanted to be approved by the, um, by the economic sectors. Uh, we basically pulled the plug on that mine and that caused the resignation of the, um, of the finance minister and the economy minister. Um, and therefore, um, we came out of this uh, with very much a strength of leaving a legacy of conservation for President Bachelet. Today in COP15 COP uh, for the, the Biodiversity Conference in Montreal, they're thinking about 30% protection. We uh, reached 37% protection of our land and ocean. And actually now there's evidence that this is actually much better for having better fisheries, better agriculture, better um, tourism, better forestry. So whatever we spend on conservation has five times more benefits and cost. I'll just finish saying, you know, we did the Escazú Agreement, which are very proud to be uh, doing the first environmental justice agreement uh, in, in Latin America, which is today um, have been uh, ratified by the majority of the Latin American countries. Chile uh, left it in 2018, but came back in 2022 with President Boric, and we're very proud to be back in the Escazú Agreement. If you want to see more about the National Park story, it's uh, chapter two of the our national great national parks uh, documentary by uh, narrated by Barack Obama is available on Netflix, and you know it, it shows uh, something that's much more immersive than my my crappy slides here. Um, President Bachelet uh, got the the Champions of the Earth Award for the biggest, uh, the, the best uh, environmental policy in the in the world that year. But I just want to say the most important thing that I, I I come from you know as a conclusion, having seen her change on this, and in her final uh, final um, speech on this, says uh, Chile's great environmental achievement is that the environment is no longer a sectoral issue for specialists or idealists. It's now an imperative and 
and discuss any discussion on the economy, energy, territorial planning, housing, international relations, or transportation. So basically, it's uh, it's something that needs to be everywhere in what we do. Now, I'll just do shortly about the Methane Hub, which is a, a philanthropic collaborative launched uh, in COP26. We are operating today um, and globally with operations in Africa, Europe, the U.S., and in Latin America, uh, focusing on methane mitigation. Methane mitigation, for those who haven't followed, since it's a very potent greenhouse gas, uh, whatever we do in the short-lived, if we do something on methane, we'll be able to actually, by the time we require, as we establish the decarbonization, and so therefore it's a good guardrail to keep uh, 1.5 alive and prevent the irreversible tipping points that we want to prevent. Um, and therefore, it's coming from agriculture, basically livestock, from waste, from energy, from the developing world is what's, where it's going to actually be growing a lot while the developed countries have actually stabilized their emissions for a long time. And therefore, we need to use multiple uh, different uh, um, information. And we're using satellite information to highlight what we could achieve. We could actually go into large emitting sources and prevent that emissions from occurring and actually uh, show the progress without having to look at the end of the year for what we've done. Uh, and this these years, there's multiple uh, satellite platforms that are going to be established today. So there's a lot of momentum going for methane mitigation globally. And the methane hub is at the center of this. We Many of us uh, that are today at the methane hub did this because we knew that while we've done a lot on agri uh, sorry on energy on transportation uh, we are not guaranteed success on the waste and agricultural sectors the food system is not guaranteed to be sustainable and that's why we're here at the methane hub also to be able to reduce emissions even more thank you so Thanks. much marcelo this has just been absolutely educational we will uh, share that for anyone that liked access to the slides We'll make sure to put those in the description notes after today's call so that you can access those and see them in more in-depth information later. Um, I know that uh, we have plenty of questions in the Q&A, and I think, Sabrina, we'll probably only have time for uh, you to tee up the favorite one that you see. But before we do that, Marcelo, if you feel comfortable, can you also reflect a little bit more of us for those tuning in in the U.S. who often have a lens that is you know, focused on our own domestic goals and the ups and downs of what we're able to achieve. Did you see progress? Did you see inspiration? Did you see hope within COP27? Were there any stories in the last couple of weeks that I know when you were there with Madeline, with Joe, thank you again, Joe, for making this connection today with Marcelo. Any anecdotes or stories you'd like to share for the good of our volunteers here in the US? I'll tell you two things that I think are really important. Um, when Jennifer Morgan, formerly executive director of Greenpeace, and Maisa Rojas, minister of the environment for Chile now, uh, were now an IPCC uh, scientist, they get together. I thought that, you know, what they wanted to do, they wanted, for those who haven't followed, they were tasked to do the loss and damage portion of the agreement. And the, the politician in me said, you know, that's probably not a winning uh, topic. It's never been made, made, made any progress. But well, you never need to you, you never need to underestimate the capacity of the commitment from people to do things and how how two people can actually do something different than the rest. There's a thing with environment ministers. Many times it's a consolation prize. Uh, not, not a lot of people that are environment ministers have really dreamt to be that, but it does make a difference when that does happen. And uh, Misa did that 
Jennifer did that and they achieved this loss and damage agreement, which shows that things can change and few people, it doesn't take a lot of people to do that. So I just want to call on you guys to, to never underestimate your own power. The, the capacity that the changes that we've seen in Chile have been driven by civil society. The political establishment, which was, was, I was very agnostic of, did not get this. Still doesn't get it fully. It's still within the environmental movement that actually gave the Chile the opportunity to have a better growth pathway, more economic stability, lower energy costs. It wasn't the incumbents that said this. It was the people that didn't, uh, didn't really settle for the explanation that the experts said. So in the, in the U.S. side, I think we've learned also a lot. The thing with, the, the, you know, getting rid of all the coal that was, wanted to happen. The economic system has shifted and it doesn't matter who's in office. It's going to be renewable. It doesn't matter if you like coal, you dig coal. It's not going to happen because it's something that it's it's something that uses uh, energy that has a cost. And whereas uh, the sun and the wind are free and the technology can only drop in costs, right? So therefore, um, it, it, it's uh, forces that are going in different directions. And that's why renewable energy is going to win. So uh, I was very excited to see... Um, uh, President Biden's uh, speech. Um, he commits a hundred times more climate finance on than uh, what is annually deployed by the northern Hem the, by North America. So this is a game changer, and I think that the, that you guys are off to a good start. I do think the lesson learned from Chile it shouldn't ever be a partisan thing. In Chile, it's not a partisan thing. We have the left wing, right wing. My head of uh, of Latin American and waste uh, initiatives in the GMH is from the Piñera administration. And we believe the same things, you know, climate is we got to fight against climate change. Here's to that, Marcelo. Thank you so much. Sabrina, if you wanted to just let us know, I know that we've got a lot of wonderful questions. Which one is bubbling to the top or is the most upvoted for you that we can ask Marcelo here to close us out for the first half today? The question that we're asking live is, do you have any thoughts on why Chile is so successful in advancing environmental policies compared to other countries, both in South America and the rest of the world? I think it's uh, about um, being solid fundamentally on economics, okay? So um, if you think about, let's say, Argentina or Venezuela, they, they've been subsidizing fossil fuels, and that really helps uh, hinders the capacity to change uh, this overall. Even though I've been very critical of the current government in Chile, subsidies of fossil fuels, we don't have a lot of history. We try, like to keep the economics clear. And the narrative is that uh, you know uh, pollution causes externalities and it's bad uh, free market if you're not incorporating, it's a market distortion if you're not incorporating the price of pollution. And so I'd say that's probably the biggest um, thing that drives our change that we don't, that the solutions that we, that we provide don't require for you to be funneling in a whole bunch of money that we know is not gonna be able to be deployed all the time. We have other things to do uh, with our resources, and it's better to set up a market-based solution in which most of the investments have been done by the private sector. Well, we are all about market-based solutions as well. Thank you so much, Marcelo, for obviously your incredible perspective across so many spheres of influence that your career has touched within the climate policymaking process. Um, I think that we are deeply struck by all of the examples that you provided, and I know that uh, we will be sure to follow up with the Q&As that we've left here 
um, in our forum. So just know that we look forward to continuing on in this vision and this legacy for enacting a lot of that same market-based approach within our own worlds and for our ongoing work within Citizens Climate Lobby and Citizens Climate International. And uh, we also know it's the weekend and you probably have other commitments right now uh, that you're welcome to stay on for the last part of our call today, but we also entirely understand if you have to drop off to attend to other matters too. Yeah, thanks. I'm gonna go back to the camping trip with my kids. So see you later. Thanks for hey, everything. That Bye. sounds great. Thank you so much, Marcelo. Bye-bye, thanks to you. Oh, wonderful. All right, so let's talk about updates from the field that we've been working on. Again, that was a enriching conversation. We're so grateful for Marcelo's time here today. First off, I'd love to just ask about all of those lobby meetings that you've been having. I know that our numbers overall that Amy Bennett has shared with me this week have confirmed that we collectively have held or confirmed 259 meetings where appointments have been set and that there are 433 confirmed appointment setters. Wow. And what kind of an impact is this having? Well, as of yesterday, one of our primary asks for this lobby drive, the RISE Act, which I mentioned earlier, now has 26 House co-sponsors. This is a bill that less than one month ago, before our lobby days, had only three total co-sponsors in the House. And on the Senate side, there are now three additional bipartisan sponsors as well, thanks to CCL's efforts bringing the total to 23 co-sponsors as well. And as I've hinted at, we've been mobilizing CCLers to write their House representatives asking them to co-sponsor the RISE Act, and now we are expanding that action to include senators. So we'll be sending out that email and text message early next week to encourage everyone to take that action. And if you want to in your chapter meetings or even to do that right now, we'll put that link again in the chat for people to be able to take action and immediately make an impact. And a quick reminder as well on lobbying, uh, not, not to forget to submit your meeting minutes after your incredible meetings. So far through the fall lobby drive, we've had 88 meeting minutes I know submitted and additionally, in the month of November, beyond our lobby efforts, you generated 4,423 phone calls and letters to your members of Congress, 125 outreach events, published 108 letters to the editor, and held 27 grass tops meetings in this last month alone. So thank you. We know that each and every one of you and each and every one of these events and actions has a beautiful story behind it. And so a little window into the incredible work that you and your teams have been doing one of my favorite CCL blog posts and series really this year has been Katie Zakreski's work on With Gratitude. We'll put a link to that in the chat where you can make sure if you haven't yet to find and follow that. And we just wanted to thank each and every one of the featured stories profiled in this wonderful series so far. I know I speak on behalf of the whole staff that it's so energizing for me to read about the creative dedicated efforts that you find ways to accomplish each and every day in your climate advocacy. And in that spirit, our communication teams actually wants me to announce that there's a plan beginning next year to feature a story in our weekly briefing each week for a CCL chapter doing this kind of work. So if you'd like to get a leg up and obviously start having the chance to share the stories that you and your chapter are up to and have them be featured in our weekly briefing, go to the link that we're going to put in the chat to make sure to start sharing your story. That's CCLUSA dot org forward slash chapter dash profile and we'll make sure to share that in multiple ways as well all right so i am next going to pass it to my dear friend topher anderson to allow us to get an update on where the year-end appeal stands and how we can all help out topher the floor is yours 
All right, thanks, Brett. Uh, hi, everyone. So as Brett mentioned, we are in the midst of our year-end fundraiser, and we are now over a third of the way to our $1.5 million goal. So this is an amazing start. And as we're looking towards the end of the year, we still need to raise that remaining two thirds. And we know that hitting this goal is really important because it makes up a substantial part of our budget every year. And being fully funded ensures that you, our incredible volunteers in the field, have the training, the tools, and the support that you need to be effective climate advocates. It also allows us to reach and recruit volunteers, especially in districts that might need extra help or in districts where it's really strategic to get that congressional support to then pass legislation. And just this year, you know, we've all celebrated that we played a key role in passing the Inflation Reduction Act, and that's been amazing. But through it all, it's important to know that we never stopped working on both sides of the aisle. As Brett just shared, we've recruited 26, I think, co-sponsors to the RISE Act, and we've helped pass four bipartisan laws in the last three years. So as we look at the next Congress, we know that there's no one better positioned to make climate a bridge issue and keep building that political will to pass climate legislation for a livable world. So I'm here today to ask for your help in keeping that momentum. If you haven't already, I ask that you consider making a year-end donation today at whatever amount makes sense for you. You can go to cclusa.org forward slash donate to make a gift and track our progress. And if you've already donated, I just wanna say thank you so much. Uh, please consider taking a moment to spread the word to your friends and family. And let's go do it now. Onward. Back yeah. to you, Brett. Thank you so much, Topher, for that. That is absolutely one thing that each and every one of us can do or maybe already has. And so we appreciate anyone that hasn't yet to check out that link in the chat and we'll jump in and make sure to also share how this connects to our monthly action sheet. So in the eternal words of Mark Reynolds, what are we doing this month, people? Well, for December's monthly action sheet, here is what CCL's team recommends doing together at your local chapter gathering. Again, a reminder that you can find this action sheet if you go to cclusa.org forward slash action sheet. And let me review each of our five actions. Number one, you can use our take action worksheet to launch your policy advocacy. If you're curious about where to find that worksheet, it's available as a download as part of this month's action sheet. You can also search in CCL community for the chapter action planning worksheet. You'll see the resource detailed right here. On page one of that worksheet, what we're asking you to do is think as your chapter about what you are personally excited about with CCL's policy agenda. What areas would you like to take on and explore? Again, we do not expect all chapters to do all areas of our policy agenda. And we'd also like you to think about what might be most relevant or applicable in your community or home state. Are there any areas or issues that are most important or energizing for your member of Congress as well? Use that discussion to really energize and think through as a chapter where you'd like to focus your efforts for 2023 collectively. And then the wonderful thing is on that second page of the worksheet, you'll have a chance to start brainstorming for any of the policy areas that you'd like to take on, who's on the team, what's the plan, which levers, those levers of political will that you'd like to pull in order to generate those efforts forward. You can see here as an example on the screen, Todd and his local team have filled out this as if they are also taking on the CCL focus of building electrification and efficiency. And this worksheet, again, is straightforward, simple, and a wonderful way after you're completing it too, 
to post it on your chapter's group page or share it out so that other people that maybe couldn't make that planning effort know how they can plug in in the year ahead as they also join in the efforts. So that's the first action. The second thing we wanna do is chapter development action. It's a bonus action to celebrate your chapter's success. We'd like you to think about a way that you can celebrate all the things that you've accomplished with your team in 2022. You can create a CUDA board, you can have a chapter party, you can honor your volunteers with a whole host of other ideas. We wanted to make sure that you were thinking about how to get that out there and celebrate and slow down to reflect on all that you have achieved. We also want you, if you're interested, to ask your friends and family to donate to CCL for the holidays. As Topher just shared, our year-end appeal runs through December 31st, and friends can dedicate their gift in your name when they make a donation at citizensclimate.org forward slash give. So there's some great activities and ideas for that in the actual action sheet. And you can also do so with your social media post. We have a wonderful social media toolkit for the fundraiser where you can see example posts and graphics and you can share your story of how CCL has empowered you on social media and tell your story within your personal network that way as well. And with that, we also have our communications exercise this month, practicing leading with who we are by telling your story. And again, we think of this as a three-part story arc. You can start by giving background about what worried you about climate change before you discovered CCL. You can then reflect on how joining the CCL community has encouraged you to do more and feel effective in your work. And then you can think through how you see your CCL work contributing to building an effective climate movement overall. If you're looking for some specific examples, the action sheet this month has wonderful stories and we'd absolutely love to hear you share yours in the forums after you've done this with your chapter two. So in closing today, what I'd actually like to do, given that we've done so much together this year, and it's really hard to wrap our heads around all of it, to help put this all in context, in addition to that amazing With Gratitude CCL blog series that I highlighted earlier, CCL's executive director, Madeline Para, put the following story of our year in review that I'd like to share some of the excerpts and highlights with each of you. So let's celebrate together as we go through 2022. Let's think back to January where CCL mobilized in support of climate action during reconciliation with a goal of 10,000 messages to President Biden and Congress, where we reached 16,819. In February, we set a new goal of 40,000 messages to Congress in support of by April, and we achieved that goal and exceeded it to 42,246. In March, we held the second annual CCL Conservative Climate Leadership Conference, really our first in-person conference since COVID, and we got five Republican members of Congress to speak at our keynote. In April, you all at CCL Chapters held 960 outreach events, including tabling, presenting, film screening, grass top and editorial board events, chapter meetings, almost doubling that initial goal we set of 500 action tracker reports. And let's keep moving down the list. In May, not to be swayed, we continued forging ahead with returning to our DC conference plan despite that pandemic. We aren't doing in-person lobbying this last year, but we will this coming year as another demonstration of excitement and support. In June, we focused on rolling out our policy agenda with the outline that we provided in the actual June conference speech from Madeline. In July, we as staff decided that budget reconciliation was over due to all of the drama that we were seeing in Congress. 
Negotiations felt dead, so we decided to start pursuing our policy agenda based on that outcome. But in August, the Inflation Reduction Act was introduced and passed. We generate 9,735 contacts to Congress in two short weeks and hold our first ever bill signing party. And what do we do this fall? We didn't slow down, that's for sure. We held our first virtual inclusion conference. Staff went into high gear on defining and messaging around our policy agenda. In October, we held our first ever Earth Day election edition across the country with 82 events. In November, we had 1,957 election season events from June through November election. Hundreds of volunteers, many of you are on the call today, partnered with the Environmental Voter Project to phone bank as well. And for that, we thank you. And just this month, as we already shared, we had a policy agenda rolled out with our virtual national conference. We are lobbying conference, uh, Congress and the RISE Act has already gone from 47 or from four to 27 co-sponsors. What a year in review. What an incredibly powerful year, obviously 22 has been. And to close out today, what I'd love to do is just make a full circle in my own life for you. In August, I hosted the call right before going on paternity leave. And I shared with each of you how thankful I was for your dedicated efforts to make this session in Congress the most ambitious and climate action oriented in our country's history. And it felt personal. And now today, I want to proudly share that we have a beautiful beaming cherub cheeked four month old that has absolutely filled our home with such joy. We named him Quest, here he is, you can say hi Quest, which is Latin for that which is sought out for, to seek for, not only in celebration of the long journey that it's been for Julie and I and having our own bio child, but also to commemorate the commitment and pursuit that each and every one of us in the climate movement has made in our shared work on bending that arc of our future together, a quest that's so much larger than any of us individually on our own. And so on behalf of Quest and the future that he faces, a future where terms like mid-century and even 2100 no longer feel like abstract or far off concepts, we wanna thank each of you for the work you get up every morning to do to make our world a better place for him and for the next generation to grow up into. So with that, thank you. Much love to each of you in your winter holidays ahead. And we'll close with an inspirational snippet from Jeezy's speech at the conference. Thank you all. Leadership doesn't require this innate talent to lead. People think leaders should already be inspiring and charismatic from birth, but that's untrue. The fact is, a lot of people don't have the so-called natural talent for leadership. They're introverts or they're awkward. That's how I was. I didn't have any natural born talent for people or for leadership, but I still had a strong will to help fight climate change. And I had a vision of action that I believed in. So I led anyways. I kept my chapter running. I strategized, I organized meetings and events. And at the same time, I learned how to empower and inspire and all those other skills I didn't have experience with. And I managed to do most of it in my bedroom with YouTube on in the background. My leadership may not have been perfect or pretty, but it worked and it helped my chapter. That is what mattered. If you're like me, if you wanna make a big change, but you're not a natural leader, then I encourage you to lead anyway as a grass tops team leader, a media manager, 
a chapter leader, whatever. Yes, it's a learning process. And yes, you will make mistakes. But during that time, you'll be making a bigger and bigger dent on the climate crisis. You'll be able to help in ways that you couldn't before without being a leader. And best yet, you'll be helping others to do the same. In the end, you won't be leading a random group of strangers. You're leading a group of people who are itching to take action against climate change. And you just need the guidance of a good leader to take that first step. If you can empower your members to believe in the importance of their actions by simply showing examples of real people's past climate victories, you are leading well. If you can make resources easily accessible to your members who want to learn more, you are leading well. Of course, there's much more to leadership as a whole, but it doesn't have to be this complicated and intimidating task. It doesn't have to be noble or pretty. It can be simple, it can be straightforward. As long as it helps your chapter members, then you are succeeding as a leader. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.